Father, once again we come to you this morning. We're delighted that we have your word, that we can open it and hear it and understand it, that you have made it very clear to us. We thank you that in it you reveal your son, Jesus Christ. He is our joy and our glory, and we are waiting for him to come back and take us as his bride home. Until then, help us to hear his words of life. May we be encouraged this morning and also challenged to be more like your son, Jesus Christ, for that's why you called us out of darkness into your marvelous light, and that's why you have chosen us to be conformed to the image of your son. May you help us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to start off this morning with an alarming statistic and ask this question, and I want to see who gets the closest to it. How many thoughts do you think that you have in one single day in a 24-hour span? Is it 1,000 thoughts? Is it 5,000? Is it a million? Well, the reality is this. You have, on average, 50,000 thoughts per day. That works out to 18.2 million thoughts a year. If you live to be 75, that's 1.3 billion thoughts that you're going to have. Since you got out of bed this morning, you've probably already had 8,000 thoughts. What am I going to dress my kids in? What are we having for breakfast? Is there going to be traffic on the way to church? What songs are we going to sing? And since I started this morning or prayed, you've probably had another 100 thoughts. Maybe think about what you're going to do on Mother's Day while I was praying. This is no wonder why people cannot or have a hard time remembering sermons. 90% of sermons kind of sweep away from my mind by Friday, and today, by today's evening time, 50% of it will be, will be gone. And so our brains are a powerful thing that God has created for us to use for his glory. The most powerful computer took 40 minutes to crunch the data. It took the brain one second. The brain information travels, impressive 268 miles an hour. The brain isn't fully formed until the age of 25 or a little bit later, which uh, now you know why the teenage years are called the teenage years and why interesting things happen during that time. Every minute, one liter of blood flows through your brain, and your brain can process an image in as little as 13 milliseconds, which is less than you would blink. So it's amazing how our brains really are and how God created them, but it's so interesting that We seem to be, over time, decreasing our attention span in our brain. A number of years ago, people could sit through a sermon for an hour and a half or two hours. As Puritans, that has decreased to about an hour. Some churches do 15 or 20 minutes. On social media, what used to be a short-form content of 10 minutes on YouTube is now considered long-form. And now everything in your life can just be summarized in one-minute videos called Reels. So with 50,000 thoughts a day, I want to ask you this morning, what are you thinking about? And the second thing is, how are we thinking? You see, this is a very important question because Proverbs declares this, for as a man thinks within himself, so he is. The Bible teaches that our lives are the products of our thoughts. Our actions are a result of our thinking. If we go to Romans 12, Paul echoes the same idea, saying that we are transformed from the renewing of our mind. Our mind dictates our affections, which dictate our actions, which build habits and then our identity. And the reason why we're talking about thinking is because in the little book of Philippians that Paul has written, with only four chapters, Paul uses the word to think or some comp comparable word to that more than in any other epistle. 
20 times. And there's two words that he uses. The first one that he uses is the word scopeo, which means to notice or to consider, which is where we get our English word scope. You're looking through something. You're noticing something. You're considering something. And then he also uses the word logizomai, which means to reckon or also to consider. From the word we get logic. You're thinking through something. And so one, one's manner of life is truly a reflection of what occupies their mind. And this morning, this is what the Apostle Paul is getting to in our section. Jonathan Edward also said this, The ideas and images in men's minds are the invisible powers that constantly govern or control them. I want to read it again. The ideas and images in men's minds are the invisible powers that constantly govern and control us. And so our passage this morning is specifically about that. We see kind of three sections here, verses 2 and 3, and then verses 4 to 7, and verses 8 to 9. And you might be wondering, as I was wondering when I came to this passage, like, we all know this verse, bring our requests to the Lord. What am I going to draw out of here? What are we going to be able to take away for us this morning and for myself? Well, as I was studying this passage, I realized this passage is all about thinking, and it's all about the mind. And I want to show that with you, or show that to you. When we look in verse 2, what we see here is, is Paul writing, saying, I entreat you, Dia, and I entreat Syntec to agree in the Lord. The little word to agree in English is the Greek word to think, and then there's another added word, the same thing. So the idea of to think is right here with the idea to agree, because to agree with somebody literally means to think the same thing as somebody. And so in our English, it's just made simpler, but in the Greek, it is to think the same thing. Well, in verse 8, our passage closes on this idea. At the very last phrase of verse 8, it says, think about these things. And so Paul is battling ideas of the mind, wrong thinking that the Philippian church could have that is leading to disunity and other things. And in the very middle section, we see this idea of anxiety which is a product of right, wrong thinking. And we see a call to joy, which is a product of right thinking. And so this morning, I want to call you to think differently for gospel advancement. Think differently for gospel advancement. And I want to turn your attention or remind you of a time at the end of the 90s when there was this one man, whose name was uh, Steve Jobs, who decided that every single person should have a computer in their home and not only at work. And at that time, this was a revolutionary idea. And so the slogan of his company was, think differently. And not only does every person have a computer inside of their home, but every single one of you has a computer in your pocket. And this idea of thinking differently brought out a revolution that we have not seen since probably the Industrial Revolution of the early 20th century. A small little company with a big slogan about thinking and change the perspective of how we live life today. And so in all these three sections, Paul is saying don't think about self, but think biblically and for God's glory. And when you do think this way, you're going to be able to accomplish more than a company like Apple can accomplish. You can do great things for the glory of God. And so first of all, we need to think for unity. Think for unity. And that's what we find in our first two verses here in verses 2 and 3. 
He's saying, I entreat Udiah and Syntek. And this idea of to entreat is to exhort or I appeal to, I'm, I'm really strongly urging these two women who are co-laborers. Now, I want to give you a little bit of the context of who these women are. Well, first of all, their names. Udiah, Udiah means things turn out well or succeed. And the name Syntek means the unexpected coinciding of two events. So it seems like the coinciding of the two events didn't really turn out too well. Udiah and Syntek need agreement with one another because there isn't. Well, what do we see in these verses? Yes, I ask you, true companion, help these women. Number one, they are women who have labored second thing side by side with me. So they were with Paul in ministry laboring for gospel advancement. We also see here that they are with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. So these women are known in this church and also seemingly in other churches or other regions around them. And their names are in the book of life. So they're known, they're connected. You know, Paul, Clement, members of the church of Philippi, the rest of the workers. These are people who are not doing ministry in the background. These are people who are doing ministry in the foreground. These are women who are ministering alongside Paul for the advancement of the gospel, and their ministry is visible. And what Paul is saying is that there has been some kind of disagreement, some kind of problem, some kind of disunity that has happened as they are ministering, that now Epaphroditus needs to come in from the outside as he's carrying this letter and figure out this situation. Now, what was the problem? We have no idea what the nature of the problem was, but we can do some deducement and see that it was not a doctrinal or moral issue. And the first, the reason why is because Paul would always address doctrinal or moral issues, would he not? Any doctrinal issue he would bring up and say, this is not correct. Any moral issue to call out like in the church of Corinth. It was not a straightforward solution or else Paul would have also tackled it. Whatever the problem was, it must have taken long enough that Paul received a letter from the church at Philippi. It was brought to him while he was in jail in Rome. And now he is sending back and saying that this needs to get resolved. So this wasn't an issue that was persisting for mere hours or certain days. It seemed like this was something that was continuous. Most likely an interpersonal disagreement. An interpersonal problem that begins with a disagreement. It's not the difference between wrong or right, but better or best. The difference of preferences. And I want you to think about your life right now and pause and think about the last types of disagreements that you've had with people that are close to you. Whether in your family or at work or even in church. Were these doctrinal disagreements? Were these moral disagreements? Or were these just personal preferences. And if you were to take the last 10 disagreements of your life, I would, I would guess that 80 to 90% of them are simply preferences. Honey, I would like you to <laughs> do this at this point in time. No, Dennis, I think it would be best if we did things this way. And disagreements continue. So why does Paul need to address this problem? Why can't they just seem to figure out on their own these two women who are ministering who have been impactful in the gospel because disagreement falls short of the like-mindedness 
and putting other interests before your own. And so if you're looking for the answer to why is Paul talking about Christ as the example, why is Paul calling the church to look not only to their own interests but the interests of others, you can find that answer now in chapter 4, verse 2, that there is a disagreement in the church It is a preferential disagreement and is now impacting people in the church. But not only that, we know that the church at Philippi was on a very strategic route via Ignatia that if their impact, gospel impact, was affected, it would affect the people that are passing through. And so turn with me back to chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. This is why Paul is tackling this idea of letting your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And also why he is calling them in chapter 2, verse 3, to these words. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Very interesting term that Paul uses. Don't look to your own interests. It doesn't say doctrine, it doesn't say moral value, he says interests, preferences. But look to the interests of others. And so imagine the ripple effect that not only would happen in this church, but the team that Udiah and Sintek were a part of. They're not living Christ-like, they're not being like-minded, they're not choosing to rejoice in the midst of adversity. And so the gospel is truly at stake. Because at the core of the gospel is reconciliation, is peace. That God the Father has reconciled us to himself through his Son. And so now, Epaphroditus, you're going to come and you're going to urge these women who have labored in the gospel, have the mind of Christ. Have the mind of Christ. Think the same thing and to agree, as it says here specifically, not to agree on any basis, but to agree where? In the Lord to agree for his glory. So they need to agree to have, to think the same thing, and to have the mind of Christ. I already alluded to this, but to agree, you need to think the same way. You need to have the same mindset about things. To be able to agree whether you're going to send your kids to public school or private school or homeschool, you need to agree or have the right mindset or perspective or worldview with your spouse And when you have that same mindset, then you're going to be able to make the right decision. If you're thinking about whether you're going to be going to work or your spouse is going to work, you need to agree and have the same mindset and biblical perspective about what family looks like. And so how are you going to think the same thing? You're going to both read, study, look toward the same example. And so which example do you die and sin technique to look to? The example of chapter 2 and verse 5 that says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Christ is going to be the example that they need to look to. Christ is going to be the one who is going to teach them about zero entitlement, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Christ is going to teach them what it's like to have to be to sacrifice where he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. What it means to serve, and then he took on a death, point of a death and death on the cross. They're going to agree in the Lord to think the same thing and think what? 
to think that they are truly servants and slaves who are on a greater mission and their small little differences that they have among each other should not impede the mission that Christ has called them to. And so, Epaphroditus, take hold of together. That's what it means to help, come alongside. I ask you, true companion, help these women. So what does the word help mean? When you're trying to help people, Epaphroditus is going to help them. What does it mean to help? It means to take hold of together. You see, you always need a third party to come into the situation to tackle the issue at hand. So what Paul has been urging them to do this whole time. And the very interesting thing is that this word help, it's a command. He's saying help these women, but it is in the middle voice. We know what an active voice is. Active voice is I am doing something. I throw the ball. A passive voice would be, I am catching the ball. You're receiving it. What is the middle? The middle voice is this idea of you have vetted interest in this. You have vetted interest. So when you wash yourselves, as many of us do every single morning when we get up, who are you washing yourself for? For yourself. So that you feel good, so that you look good. And so what. Paul is saying, help these women, but as you're going to help them, Epaphroditus, it's going to benefit you as well. It's not something that you can resolve quickly, but you're going to work on it and you're going to see that it's going to help everybody who is a part of this. So ultimately, what is Paul calling these two women to do? What is God calling us when we're looking at this passage? Number one, he's showing us that differences come up rather frequently in our life. Preferences come up rather frequently in our life. Are we going to embrace the mind of Christ of chapter 2 and think of others' interests higher than ourselves or think of only our own interests? Really, ultimately, what Paul is saying is this. Don't think that you are beyond Jesus. Don't think that you have graduated to this level where you don't need to humble yourself where you don't need to cast aside your rights, that you need to stand firm on what you want to do, which causes then problems, whether it is within your family, within the church family, or within a work context. But agree. Agree by having the same mind. You know, that just by way of illustration, this is something that I constantly come back to as my wife and I have a disagreement. In that moment, I think to myself, am I having the mind of Christ where I'm looking to her interests more than my own? Or, having, or am I having the mind of Dennis in the flesh, thinking of my interests above her interests? What is at stake here is highly important. It's the gospel. But what is also at stake in our interpersonal relationships with our spouse and church members. Isn't that also the gospel? Isn't marriage supposed to picture Christ and the church? Isn't the church supposed to embody and be the bride of Christ and to shine the light of the gospel? And so, first of all, what we are called to do here is to think for unity by having the mind of Christ. Second thing is think for joy. Think for joy. Now, the unity that Paul is calling them to in verses 2 to 3, is exemplified or given the solution to in verses 4 through 9. So think for joy. 
Two times, right in the very first verse, we see, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. To rejoice is to be in a state of happiness and well-being. And this is ongoing. Now, this is not the first time that Paul has called them to rejoice. In verse 18, we read, I rejoice and I will rejoice. And what is the most ironic thing of verse 18? Paul is in jail. What is the most ironic thing about the book of Philippians overall? Paul is calling them to rejoice. We all know that it is the book of joy, but Paul is in jail. His circumstances are not working out like he might have wanted to. The church is not expecting things to happen that... uh, not expecting things to happen the right a certain way. And Paul is calling them, just rejoice through this all. In verse 17 of chapter 2, he says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you, you should rejoice with me. In chapter 3, verse 1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And here in chapter 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always and again. I will say, rejoice. The book of Philippians is calling us to joy, but it is not leaving us without a solution how to achieve that joy. Where can joy be found? Rejoice in the Lord. In your relationship with God, in your union with Christ. Because joy is not circumstantial. Joy is relational. Our joy does not change, as we read. It's our state of happiness and well-being does not change based off of our circumstances. Why? Because our joy is found in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And he is enough for us. And he is sufficient. And he provides. So Paul is commanding them now to rejoice. Now I ask myself a question that I want to ask you. When you are in your life, going about a day where the day is not going as you would like, relationships are not going that great, and I'm just going to walk up to you and say, rejoice. You just need to rejoice. Just just change your attitude. (laughs) Is that how it works? We know that is not how it works. I'll just change my mood. I'll stop grumbling. I'll stop complaining. I'll stop thinking about the issues of my life. I guess I'm just going to now rejoice. We see here that Paul presents two joy robbers in our life, strife and anxiety. Where do we find strife here in this passage? Look at verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. This word reasonableness means a gentle and forbearing spirit. To be reasonable is to be gentle and forbearing. Very much the call that he was calling them to that we saw in, in verses 2 and 3. When he's calling Udai and Sintik to lay aside their preferences and to agree in the Lord. To not stand on their own ground. To be reasonable. And so this is what reasonable mean, means. It means not to stand on your own rights. Not insist on your own, but have zero entitlement like Christ. A very interesting thought that Aristotle once said. He describes the gentle person, the reasonable person, as one who is content to receive a smaller share 
although he has the law on his side. And we use different words for this. We say, I guess I'll just take the short end of the stick. Sometimes we say, I guess I will just have to be the bigger person and lay aside my preferences and desires. And so here, let your reasonableness be known to everyone is this idea of strife. That instead of being reasonable, that there would be strife. And strife, or lack of reasonableness, is the robber of joy. I thought of how I could be able to illustrate to you what this looks like, how to be reasonable and gentle. Think of all the road signs that we drove to get to church this morning. There were stoplights. Some were green, some were red. If they were red and you were late, we all know what you were feeling. There were stop signs. There were yield signs. There were emerging signs. You see, in a relationship, like you die and Syntec had, there are road signs that you need to follow for the relationship to work well. Sometimes you have to stop. Sometimes there's green and yellow. And so the question is this. Like in a relationship, relationship is like driving on a road. Are you going to yield your ideas, your speech, your preferences for the sake of unity and peace? Are you going to be reasonable? Let your reasonableness be known This is not something that you herald. I'm reasonable. I'm gentle. Look at me. But people know that that's the kind of person that you are. So what are you known for? Are you known for being bitter, unhappy with life, always trying to get what you want? Or are you known for rejoicing? Are you known for being gentle? Are you known for being kind? Now, we're known for things at times beyond our character. We're known for having the best brownies at church, or we're known for the cleanest home. We're having the nicest toys where my kids are saying, I want to go back to their house. We're known for maybe being great parents or having misbehaved kids. What are you known for? Are you known for being gentle, forbearing, and reasonable? If you have that, that is going to be a catalyst for joy and rejoicing. And Paul loves to add little phrases like this. The Lord is at hand. God's coming back, so just be sure that you're living the life that he wants you to live. The second joy robber we see in this passage is anxiety. Do not be anxious about anything in verse 6. What is anxiety? Anxiety is to be excessively concerned about something, or another way of saying it, unduly concerned about something. We see the same word actually used in chapter 2, verse 20, and I want you to turn there, and I want you to see what Paul says about Timothy. He uses the exact same word, anxious, but in a positive sense. For I have no one like him, speaking of Timothy, who will be genuinely Concern, that idea of concern is the exact same word as anxiety in the next chapter. Generally concerned for your welfare. But concern that is good, is biblical, is Christ-like. But excessive concern 
is bad. It's, it's unbiblical. It's not trusting Christ. And this is why it's translated here as, do not be anxious about anything. Don't be excessively concerned about things. I want you to turn your attention to a few examples. If you can take your mind back to the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus gives the, the rules or laws for his kingdom of how we ought to live. And in chapter 6, he talks about anxiety extensively from verses 25 to 34. And if this is something that you need encouragement in, you can open up there later when you come home and just read that passage. It is filled with amazing truths. But Jesus talks about anxiety, being excessively concerned about things. And the first example he brings up is clothing. Is clothing good? Praise the Lord that everyone's wearing clothes this morning. <laughs> We look nice, we have our pants on, we have our shirt on, we're buttoned up, we might have a hat on, everyone is wearing clothing, clothing is good. Recently, my wife and I were talking about how it's nice to look at our children when they match and why it's important for us to, to buy bland colors so whatever they, try, whatever they decide to choose, it will always look good. Pastel colors, I guess, is in. Bright colors, not so much. So when your kid is wearing a bright orange shirt, you know what I mean? With some red uh, jogger pants, you don't know whether he is going to work <laughs> at Caltrans or whether he's actually your son, right? So clothing, clothing's important and it's good, but Jesus asked a question, why are you anxious about clothing? The same word, merimnao in the Greek, you're overly concerned about clothes. You're overly concerned about how you look. You might have put on some clothes this morning, you looked at the mirror, and then you said, you know what, it's not working. And you went back and got another, some more clothes. Why do we worry? Because we worry about what people might think. In Jesus' day, they weren't worrying about that, they just was worrying about having clothes. And so what does Jesus say? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now is cleaning and cooking good. Who doesn't love a great meal? You're all awaiting Mother's Day lunch, whatever you're going to be grilling or baking this afternoon. But you can be so over, overly worried about cleaning and cooking, about how your house looks, what people will say, or you maybe just want things a certain way, that you miss out on more important things. And if you are that person this morning, you know that. There are some people in my life who always have to say, can you just sit down and stop running around in the kitchen? We came here to spend time with you. We want to actually have a meal with you. We can clean. We can do the rest of the things later. Well, we meet a character like that in the New Testament named Martha. In Luke 10, Jesus says, the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Was it good that she was serving? Yes, it was. But she didn't even have time to sit down at the dinner table and enjoy a conversation with Jesus. Why? Martha was distracted with much service. She was anxious. And so, we see a third example in the New Testament, back to Matthew, talking about gospel work and evangelism. If you think about yourself, sometimes we're so overly concerned about what we're going to tell people we're anxious, we are excessively worried about something that we end up not saying anything. What does Jesus say? When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given you in 
that hour. See, concern is good. That's admirable. We want people to be concerned for us in the church and be concerned with one another. But excessive concern about things is not good. Excessive concern, what Jesus is ultimately saying, is that your anxiety is spinning, is that you're spinning wheels. He closes Matthew 6 by saying this, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? None of you. Your anxiety produces nothing because you do not control your destiny. You do not control your life. There's one who controls your life. So what is the root of anxiety? What is the issue when we see this command, do not be anxious about anything? What is the issue with anxiety? The issue with anxiety is this, a lack of trust and a lack of rest in the Lord. Matthew 6 says, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you? And how does that verse end? O you of little faith. So the idea is that God is going to provide. God is going to provide a word fitly spoken when you want to evangelize. God is going to provide in your career and provide the finances. God is going to provide food, whatever it is. The question is this, are you trusting him to do that? I thought of myself, thought, thought to myself, how does this relate to our life? And of course, with a bunch of little children, I have a, I have a cookie jar example for you. You know, cookie jars are good. It's okay to have a cookie jar on the table. When the cookie jar is on the table, that means the child can access that cookie jar. I don't know how it was in your house, but if it's on the table and not hidden, the kids can have it. It's accessible to them. It's in their reach. It's their height. But when the cookie jar is up in the cupboard, the top cupboard, behind five other boxes, that cookie jar is now not accessible, not for this time, but for a different time. Why? Because it's unsafe for them. They cannot climb up. It's too high. It's out of their reach for a reason. We put it away because they can't have the cookies at this time. And what God is saying is that there are things that are out of reach for you, things that you should not be concerned about at all, things you should not have excessive concern and be anxious about because they are not in your jurisdiction and ultimately because you are not God and you do not rule and you cannot control those matters. You're like a child, child trying to attain something that only the parent can do. And this is how you combat anxiety, Paul is saying. You rejoice in the Lord. This is a, is a robber of joy. Ultimately, Paul is saying this, remind yourself of your identity in Christ. You need to rejoice in the Lord. And so to a certain degree, anxiety robs you of joy Strife robs you of joy, but on the other hand, think about it. Would not rejoicing in the Lord that he is king be also the antidote for you not being anxious and also for you not being, having strife in life? The Old Testament calls people to rejoice in the Lord. Why? Because the Lord is king. Look and, and just listen to Psalm 97. Rejoice. Why? The Lord is king. Psalm 100, make a joyful noise to the Lord, to Yahweh. He is king. See, people who are caught up in the worship of God, his majesty, his glory, and his beauty are lifted above circumstances in life to rejoice in the Lord himself because ultimately they are looking up and not looking in. 
What are you doing with your circumstances this morning? Are you looking into them, trying to figure out how to solve them? Are you looking up to the one who can give you the solution, the one who is king, the one who is reigning? Paul's been telling us this is how you have joy in the Lord. It is knowing Christ. It is knowing the power of his resurrection. It is knowing your identity and all that he has accomplished. Now, friends, I want to pause here for a moment and add somewhat of a pastoral note. I was reading this book, Spiritual Depression, by Martin Lloyd-Jones. And in every single, the beginning of every single chapter, when he was talking about anxiety, whether he was talking about growing weary and doing good, Noah Lloyd-Jones says, he said this, how can you call people to Christianity if you and your life are continually downcast? What is the watching world going to think of us? And so how we react to the issues of life is a testimony to either God's faithfulness that he's true to us or we are not using that testimony and giving praise to the Lord. A time of suffering is a time when rejoicing in the Lord is the only way to survive. And so, rejoice in the Lord. Let your reasonableness be known. These are all commands. Do not be anxious as a command. And there is one more thing that we are called to do. On the other side, do not be anxious, but let your requests be made known to God. This is the formula for constant peace. Now, if somebody was going to give you a formula to be rid of anxiety for good in your life, to not be stressed out ever, how much value would it bring to you? Would you purchase it for $100? Would you purchase it for $100,000? How much is constant perpetual peace worth to you? Paul gives us the formula here. Don't be anxious about anything, but... Let your requests be made known to God. Now, it's interesting, the words that are used, to be made known to God. Does God not already know our request? Does God know ourselves? Do we know ourselves? That might be the question that we need to answer. We pray because praying moves dependence from ourselves, which leads to anxiety, to dependence on Him, which leads to peace. Once again, prayer moves us from dependence on ourselves, which leads to anxiety, to dependence on Him, which brings us peace. It's not that your peace will never be disturbed, but when Paul is saying here, let your request be made known to God and do not be anxious, the question is, what is your knee-jerk reaction when the circumstances of disagreement, of strife, of discomfort of life come? What is your knee-jerk reaction? What is your habit? Because Paul is saying, embrace this as your lifestyle. He's saying, make this your habit. It's a continuous present command. Do not be anxious, but let your request be made known to God. So is this a habit of your life? Or do you run around for different solutions and then you finally get to, oh, I can pray or I need to pray. Now, thinking of habits, I googled what are the top bad habits that we have in the United States. And I want to list them to you. Clicking your pen. Bouncing your leg. That's personally one I can't stand, so if you ever sit next to me, please don't do that. Eating too fast. Always apologizing. I'm sorry. Stop saying I'm sorry. What are you sorry about? Always saying like. Like, you know, the sermons like from Philippians like. 
Um, saying what before answering a question. Wasting napkins, my eldest. I'm starting to charge him a quarter every napkin he uses extra. Poor, poor posture. Being too sarcastic. Avoiding eye contact. Picking your nose. Hopefully we grew out of that. Interrupting people. Nail biting. Fake laughing. Sleeping in. Playing video games. And emotional shopping. Luckily no big holidays coming up. JK. A Memorial Day. All right. So these are all bad habits. You know what a habit is? It's something that you're doing that you don't even notice that you're doing. It's, it's a subconscious thing that is happening. And so most people who are struggling with anxiety, they don't even notice that they are leading up to an anxious moment because this is how they just typically react. When things become overwhelming in life, it's not a knee-jerk reaction to pray to the Lord. It is a keeping within yourself and hoping that somehow it's just going to pass. And you don't even notice. And so you don't need to stop something. You need to replace it. You need to put God on speed dial here. This is what Paul is saying. And you're going to do it with thanksgiving, as we see here, prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Why with thanksgiving? Because you know God's already going to answer. You know God is faithful. You know God is going to provide, will he not? And so you're already thanking him as you're asking him this request. So let me remind you this morning that you have a place to bring your concerns. It's at the feet of your father. He is eagerly waiting. Listen to these words of, <clears throat> of, of, uh, about Jesus in Hebrews chapter 4. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect... Every respect was tempted like we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When is your time of need? Is it not daily? Is it not weekly? Sometimes hourly your time of need? You come to him. You come to him because as Spurgeon says, do not mothers, speaking of Mother's Day, always care most for the tiniest child or for the one who is most sick. And is it not true that our weakness holds God's strength and leads him to bow his omnipotence to our rescue? So what do you say to him? You let your requests be made known. What specifically? By prayer and by supplication. Did you know that this idea of request is only used twice in the whole New Testament? Pilate granted the request that Jesus be crucified. And also in 1 John 5, we know that we have the requests we have asked of him. And here's the third time it's used in the whole New Testament. Let your requests be made known to God. And how? How do we request things with God? By prayer. This is intercessory prayer for others. And supplication, which are urgent requests to meet a need exclusively addressed to Paul. And so Paul is saying, pray. You don't have wisdom how to deal with this disagreement. You need to pray. It's causing you anxiety. You need to pray. You need to rejoice. And remember that the Lord, he is king. And when you rejoice in the fact that the Lord is king, you can be gentle and not only think of your own interests, and also you cast your cares on him, knowing that he truly is king. Now, ultimately, what is the solution that brings that you get when you do pray? It carries over from the and from verse 7 into verse 8 as well. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God. The peace. 
So we think for unity, we think for joy, we think for peace. Paul closes the section and closes, closing the whole book is saying this, finally, brothers. He's speaking to his audience as if he were there in this letter. And he's asking them, perk your ears, listen up. I have one more thing to tell you. It's like a coach who gathers the teammates in a huddle and says, listen up. This is what our next play is going to be. And Paul is saying, finally, brothers, whatever is true, honorable, etc., he closes and says, think about these things. And so when we're thinking for peace, what we truly need to do is we need to apply the filter to our life. You see, out of the 50,000 thoughts that you have per day, what thoughts do you linger on and which thoughts do you filter out? As a number of years ago, when we just moved into our duplex here in San Leandro, and uh, it was time for me, for us to grow up. We moved into our first place. This was now nine years ago. In a couple of weeks will be our nine-year anniversary. For some of you, you're thinking, wow, you are young. And for others of you, you're like, wow, you're old. Um, but I went and on Amazon.com, and I thought it's about time that we get a water filter. Uh, because apparently the water is not that great. You always need a filter. There's a bunch of chemicals in there. And so I, uh, at this time also, what you need to know is that my wife did not drink soda. And she still doesn't drink soda. And, we, and when we got married, and all of you who are married know, what happens is you will take on certain character traits or things that your spouse does, and you'll pass on certain ones that you do. And so here I am drinking only water, no more soda, Coca-Cola, in our house, no juices, etc. So I need the best drinking water. The filter comes in, and it's a five-stage filter. Because the Brita filter that you just pour through, it's not good enough. You need a, you need a five-stage filter to make it work. So I'm like, as a, as a real man, I take the manual, I put it aside, I'm like, <laughs> watch this. I crawl, into, I crawl under that sink, I'm like, this is really simple, there's three tubes, there's two more tubes, you put some filters in, connect all the wires, we should be good to go. Well, I started working on it, realized I didn't know what to do, I got the manual, I started looking at it, and it's been 30 minutes, one hour, one and a half, two hours, two and a half hours, it's like 11 p.m. on Sunday night, and I'm like, I thought I was gonna be sleeping already. Finally, the filter is in place. A few months later, about six months, it's time to change the filter. Pull off the filter, open it up, and that clean white cartridge that I saw before, I pull out and guess what it is? It's black. All of that dirt, all the grime, all those little chemicals get collected and you need a filter and you need to take all that out. Well, you see, friends, this is how it works with our mind. Our mind is the most powerful organ in our life and what happens is we need to put a filter on our mind so that there are things that do not then go through into our hearts and begin to dirty up our lives. This is what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about taking preventative measures in our life and he gives us a list of things that we should be thinking about because naturally we might be inclined to think about negative things. Whatever, wherever you're at in life right now, the negative things that we might tend to dwell on is a relationship that went sour, words that someone spoke to you that you don't agree with, work problems with your boss, low wages, mistreated by friends, and it doesn't really help when you go on social media and all of the titles are clickbait saying, this is why you should not do this, or this is why life is horrible. And everyone loves those because they're like, oh, why is it? And they click it. There's always negativity surrounding us, and Paul is saying, think about these positive things. And so, 
When we come to church context as well, we're in danger of thinking about negative things. Why, are, why aren't certain people attending a fellowship group? At this age, this guy should already be leading. I've been investing many months into this person I'm discipling. Why are they at the place that they're at? Why do people get more excited about some kind of outing or vacation than they do about the word of God? It's taken years to change this bad habit in my life. I don't know if I can even do this. Why doesn't Christ just redeem me from this? Why does it seem like our friends are not as close to us as they used to be? Mark Twain wrote this, what a wee little part of a person's life are his acts and his words. His real life is led in his head and is known to none but himself. All day long, the mill of his brain is grinding and his thoughts, not those other things, are his history. And so think about these things, Paul is saying, and specifically here we have the word logizomai, to give careful thought, to consider, to calculate, and to evaluate. And so let's briefly look through these. What he says, first of all, is whatever is true. So whatever is true, on the opposite, whatever is false. So don't think about what is false. Think about that which is true, which conforms to reality. And where do we find reality in the truth? We find it in the word of God. So when you're thinking about things that are true, you go to the word of God to be able to find that which is true. People no longer ask, is it true? Does it work? How does it make you feel is the question that people ask because Satan feeds us that and wants us to live on our emotions. We need to think about what is true, what is truth, not about how do I feel today, whether I feel objectively that I am saved or I'm a child of God or I feel like I'm falling away, but what is truth? What does Christ say you are? Second thing, what is honorable versus what is dishonorable? Honorable is something that is worthy of respect, what is noble. So there's many things that are not respectable. We find a list in Ephesians 5 where Paul tells the church, there are things that you should not even speak about that are not worthy to come off of the Christian's tongue. So don't think about that which, think about what only is honorable. Think about what is just versus that which is not just. Think about what is harmonious really is the idea here. Something that is perfect in harmony with God's eternal unchanging standards. Think about what is pure versus that which is impure. That which is impure is that which is carnal and obscene, but that which is pure is morally blameless. Think about that which is lovely versus that which is hateful. That which is lovely causes delight, pleasure, admirable. So what is lovely? Oh, you, you think back to your vacation last summer because you're looking forward to your vacation this summer and you think back, oh, that was lovely. Got to hang out on the beach. We got to just rest, read some Kindle books, play with our kids, whatever you do on vacation. That was a lovely experience. You're looking at these photographs. It was lovely versus thinking about what is hateful. This is why the psalmist says, turn my eyes from looking at what is worthless. We really need to train ourselves to turn also from discouragements, to not look at that which is unlovely. Oftentimes, discouragements can take a hold on us, and instead of thinking what is lovely and good, we're thinking about that which is unlovely. Think about what is commendable or of good reputation. That's the next thing on the list. It's praiseworthy. It's well-spoken of. Don't think about gossip, slander, putting other people down. See, the point really here that Paul is saying, and he closes where he, he can't really finish, right? He says, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise... 
So what is excellence? What is worthy of praise? Think about those things. Now, I want you to understand that they, these verses are in the context of interpersonal relationships with people. Do we see that here? Verses 2 and 3 began with a disagreement with Udaya and Syntek. And what happens in disagreements? You begin to think about that which is unlovely in people, <laughs> that which is impure, the things that we tend to gossip about, not the things that are lovely and pure and honorable and true. You see, the same idea we find in chapter 2, verse 1, where Paul says this, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort, any participation in the Spirit, what he's saying is, Christians, you have this among yourselves. You already have this. You have love. You have the Spirit. You have sympathy. You have encouragement in Christ. Because you have that, then have the same mind as Christ. And the same thing here goes. He's saying, whatever is true in the people that you're around, whatever is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, whatever is excellence in the people that you minister with, and the people that you live with in your home, think on these things. Specifically, in this context, thinking about people, but also in a larger context, thinking about the things that in general would fit these categories. I think about what is the most lovely, excellent, worthy of praise you can think of thing. And would it not be the gospel? Would it not be Jesus Christ? Would it not be reading John 13 to 17, the upper room, every single day? Or reading Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, reminding yourself of the glories of Christ or Colossians 1 and 2? Would not be that be the most important thing that you can think about and read and see those words and let those words come through your eyes and be lodged into your heart? And again and again, it just comes back to this, the 50,000 thoughts that we have each day. Where are they coming from and where are we spending most of our time at? And what are we looking at and what are we listening to that is then dictating our thoughts? And so we do these things and Paul ultimately says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you all. So what we have seen Heard, received, and learned. Paul is saying, I've showed you how to do this in your life. Follow my example. We need training in this. It's not that we have forgotten these truths, friends. The reality is that what it says here, we need to practice. We need to continue going to the spiritual gym. We need to continue working on our mindset. We need to continue applying the filter. We're practicing an ongoing lifestyle that God is calling us to. Training takes a lot of time. And so here is the formula for spiritual growth if you want to mature, and I want to give it to you. Here's the formula. It's knowledge multiplied by application equals spiritual growth. Friends, growth is not just merely knowledge. Mere knowledge, as James 1 says, is a person looking in the mirror, thinking that they're somebody, but if they don't change their life, they walk away, they're deceiving themselves. What is the deception specifically in? In the fact that they think they're growing when they're not. Knowledge does not equal maturity. Knowledge does not equal growth. Knowledge is a component of growth. And so in this section this morning, we had a number of commands, specifically seven commands to rejoice, to not be anxious, to be reasonable, to pray to God, to think on certain things. If you leave this morning and you apply, you heard all of them and you apply none of them, so we apply seven commands times zero, equals zero. But if you just take one of these, if you simply rejoice, if you simply be anxious, not, not be anxious, 
and you do that by even 5%, there is growth. And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying you need to practice these things. Don't let it just be mere knowledge and say, amen, pastor, I agree to the sermon. Yes, that was a great sermon. I, I, lo I love those kind of things, you know, when I'd be in church and people say, great sermon. And my next question is, what did you take away from it? What stood out to you? What are you going to apply in your life? Uh, yeah, you know that one thought you had? <laughs> do you simply agree with the sermon or do you really believe that it is the word of God and I'm going to listen to this word that God is saying that I need to live this way and I'm going to practice it in my life? So in conclusion, as we land this plane, what are you doing with the 50,000 thoughts that you have daily? Are you letting them just merely fly around in your mind or are you applying the filter? How are you reacting to various circumstances? Are you grumbling and standing on your own preferences or are you thinking for unity and thinking about others' interests? Are you trusting God through this all and thinking for peace? And realizing that you are not God. And lastly, are you thinking um, also for a joy? And so what are you going to do with these thoughts? If you can put up the next bolt, I'm, bolt I just want to read it. Keep going. Jonathan Edwards, what he said. And so the question is, how are you thinking? If we can hit the next slide. So here are the three ways that we should not think. Don't think you're beyond Jesus. Don't think you are God. And don't think... Ultimately, that you have it all together, but apply the filter that is found here. Ultimately, I want to encourage us that we have the mind of Christ, do we not? Christ has given us the ability to live like this, the ability to live right, the ability to walk in a way that is worthy of the gospel. It seems like a high task every time I come to the Word and I study it. I'm like, Lord, how can we do this? <laughs> this seems like it's so much work. How am I going to apply all these commands? I just remind myself that if He calls us to do something, He's going to enable us to do it. So he gave us his Holy Spirit. He gave us his word. He gave us the church community. He gave us our family to be able to apply this into our life. And so, not only that, not only has he given us the resources, but he gave us himself. Paul says in Galatians 2, that it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the, by the power of God of Christ who loved himself and gave himself for me. And so may God help us to do this and have our mind set on heavenly things where Christ is. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for these words of life, words of truth, words of hope. We thank you that your word really directs us on how we ought to live and how we can. And it begins with our mind. Help us to have the mind of Christ. Oh, Father, you know that we struggle against this flesh that always seeks its own, the flesh that desires its own. May we constantly look to the example of Christ, to embrace and have the mind of Christ. We thank you for your guidance and your help. We thank you for your love and your care. And Lord, we, you know that the relationships that we have in our life are not always so easy. May we think well of the people that are around us. May we think about what is commendable, praiseworthy. And may you ultimately, Lord, as we're thinking about life, think about your son, Jesus Christ. For his glory and for our joy, we pray these things. Amen.